Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm pleased that you're here. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about a subject we haven't really talked about in the past. We've, uh, it seems like we've covered everything at least, at least one time, sometimes more. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about contract manufacturing, the whole EMS industry. And uh, to do that, we're going to bring on my friend and colleague, Chris Denning from Worthington Assembly. Hi, Chris. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate Thanks for having me here. And this is kind of a reciprocal thing. I was on your podcast. And Indeed. There are very few podcasts in our industry. Um, <laughs> I know Altium <laughs> I wonder does one. Why. I do one. You do one. But there's, there's not a whole lot of like true podcasts. And um, uh, uh, tell me what got you into the podcast business, the Pick Place podcast, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, thanks, for the, uh, thanks for the reference there. We... Really, it came down to like during um, during the height of COVID, w- you know, we always like to be able to give tours and talk to customers and and um, kind of show them around and help them to understand what it takes to get a circuit board built because we know that that tends to make better customers and um, they they get uh, so many ideas of how to improve their process. And then it's like shut everything down, can't let anybody in the building, uh, barely can let ourselves in the building for a while, right and and it was like, okay, well, how do we continue this education program? So um, I thought about doing video. I thought about writing a bunch of, you know, a series of blog posts and help articles. And I thought, well, you know, why don't we just do a podcast? I love podcasts. I love listening to podcasts, uh, especially the Reliability Matters podcast, right? Thank you. Now we're even. <laughs> and, right? uh, yeah. And uh, I, I thought, well, let's 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 bring this to uh, really the world now, because we can't bring everybody into our factory. Mostly it's just people in the New England area or the Northeast of the United States anyway. And um, and the response has been tremendous. You know, hundreds of listeners. Uh, my goal was in 24 months to get to a thousand listeners. I think we might be able to. Um, getting 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 very close now. And uh, it's just been great. And, and it just, we just talk about like, we'll break down like very, very specific subjects down to like, okay, what is stencil printing and and what is that process what is physically going on and and what does it take to get a quality print you know so that we're ready to put parts on the circuit board and we'll get into the minutia and we'll really spend like 45 minutes 60 minutes like going into detail which i remember pitching this and everybody was like i don't know that sounds like incredibly boring to me And then those same people were like, actually, that was really interesting. I'm really glad I listened to it. So well, boring I, is I like relative, right? I mean, my yeah. friends don't listen to my podcast, right? They, no, of course. they find it incredibly boring and sure. Oh, they'll listen to 10 minutes of it or three minutes of it and say, Hey, yeah, right. yeah. I started listening. It was good, but I, <laughs> they never finish it, but yeah, it's all relative because, right. but I think the, the service you're providing and certainly I'm providing and others that, that do this is, is really valuable because there are a lot of you know, we, we've talked a lot on this show about the silver tsunami, you know, the, the gray tsunami, people <laughs> sure. leaving the industry, right? And for a long yeah. time, there was very little turnover. We just kept working at different companies. We'd show up to the same shows wearing different badges and, and um, we're quite an incestuous industry. We just 
stay in it forever. It's like a life sentence. Right. And then eventually we retire out. And, and there was a real lack of young people of fresh blood coming into this industry. And now that's changed. Now we're, I'm starting to see a lot of younger people entering this business, you know, out of college. Yeah. And, you know, I would imagine college will teach you how electrons work, but they don't necessarily tell you how to set up a printer or how, what proper squeegee <laughs> pressure should be, you know, should be done and who all the paste suppliers are. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, that's stuff you learn on the job. And I've noticed a lot of like larger companies that have subject matter experts. You know, I have a, a, a good friend of mine who's a cleaning expert for a major aerospace company, and he's the go-to guy for cleaning. I have another uh, colleague who's the conformal coding expert at a major uh, company. But when they retire, they're not being replaced by another wise sage you know sure. it, they they retire and take the wisdom with them and and um so companies now are relying on vendors to be their source of education mm -hmm. which is dangerous mm -hmm. because yeah vendor a will tell you all about vendor a stuff and not necessarily a wider perspective so uh i i think podcasts like this like you do like the one that judy warner does at altium and and Mike Buto does at PCB Chat and Fred Schenkelberg's work and reliability in his podcast, all really are, are, are vaults of really good best practice information yes. that are not brand dependent. They're not biased in any way, uh, at least not consciously. And, and I think there'll be a good value for people who are coming into this industry. You know, between yeah, I, all of us, we might I be like able to, to replace so. one sage, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I remember early on, I I I was just feeling overwhelmed at work, and I and I was talking to the owners of the company, and I said, I just need somebody. You need to give me somebody that I can just pour my knowledge into because I need another me to help me with all these weird projects and not let them languish, you know. And right. uh, this was this was another way that we could do that, where if somebody internal to the company listens to it regularly and starts to grow their knowledge base of these processes. Uh, then they're an, an obvious candidate for for being able to you know help me out with these sorts of things. So yeah, well, we've we've really enjoyed doing it. We've had a lot of great feedback, and um, yeah, it's it's full steam ahead. That's great. So let's talk about contract manufacturing, shall we, Chris? Sure. Um, I, I did a little research, and I think one of the best things your company has done since 1974 is, ch <laughs> is change your company name. Change from the, the name. original yeah. name, Moronix, <laughs> was that yeah. Moronix, to That's right. yeah. Worthington Assembly. I think that was a, right. a good move. Not to put down the, the word Moronix, uh, it probably had a meaning back then. Um, yeah, well, it was literally just Tom and uh, I don't know if it was his wife who was helping him at the time or a friend, but... He, he, the joke was it was just a couple morons in their bedroom building circuit boards. Okay, so it came from the word. But I thought it was very yeah. interesting. You can tell this was 70s because their customer, their first customer was Cyborg, you know? So yes. Cyborg yeah. hired the Moronics to, I mean, yes. this, this is like comic book material. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah. uh, eventually um, Worthington Assembly became the name and I think the yep. company was sold, right? Um, yep. And to the current owners about to, 14 years ago. Yes, yes. So um, tell me about uh, Worthington Assembly. Where are you in the big world of the EMS uh, industry? 
we're, we're a tiny, tiny little seedling in that big world. Um, you know, our, our factory is in South Deerfield, Massachusetts, and it's, you know, I, I like to say a traditional contract manufacturer, but not every listener is going to know what I mean by a traditional small contract manufacturer, but, you know, picture, um, a couple of SMT lines, a couple of through-hole lines, and you know, shipping, receiving, inspection department, a couple of AOIs, right? Kind of your your average um, thirty to fifty employee. I, I've seen them all the time. So, because previous to my career at Worthington, I was um, uh, an applications engineer for an AOI company, and and then uh, for a few years after that, I was a sales rep for a rep firm. So I went in and out of all these CMs all the time. And so to me, they're very typical because I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of them, you know. Um, but yeah, that's our that's our little niche of the world. And we have, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to talk too much about it today, but we have kind of a second brand called Circuit Hub, which is web-based and some really slick software there um, for ordering. But it's, it's such a different environment and a different um, way of doing business that, uh, you know, I think in order to keep the, this conversation to less than six hours, we'll just talk about more of our traditional Worthington assembly side of business. <laughs> Half our audience just drove off the road right now. So yeah. <laughs> come back, come back. He's kidding. He's, yeah. he's kidding. So it, it, I know that the, the CM industry is, is uh, tiered, right? So there's tier one uh, manu- uh, contract manufacturers all the way down to tier four. And I know there's a breakdown. Um, traditionally, tier one is... Five billion with a B or greater. Jeez. So those will be your Jables and probably Selectrons and you know whatever. Yeah. Um, tier two, five hundred million to five billion, uh, and all the way down to tier four, which is under hundred million, which is probably the majority of contract yes. manufacturers, right? Definitely. So it, if someone has a hundred thousand boards to build or ten boards to build, is there a rule of thumb? I mean, should I go to Jbill? Not to pick on Jbill, but you know, should I go to a tier one? With 10 boards, uh, can they do it? Or should is there an advantage? Does everyone have a sweet spot? Yeah, it's I love I actually do love this subject because there's sort of there are sort of like three tiers of of orders. There's your your 10 piece order, which is quite easy to accomplish. There's your hundred thousand piece order, which is quite easy to accomplish. And then there's like this no man's land of like two thousand pieces to like 10,000 pieces. That's just awful. Like, no, <laughs> like they're just miserable because you don't want to put all this investment in the tooling and, and custom automation that you would for your hundred thousand piece order. Um, and you can't just crack on it real quick on your 10 piece order. Like a 10 piece order, you're just like, nah, just hand place a couple things here and hand solder this done. Right. But then with like 2000 pieces, you're like, oh, I can't, am I going to hand place 2000 of these connectors? Right. Or am I going to, wait eight weeks for the manufacturer to get me these connectors tape and reeled with a pick cap, or am I going to buy a custom tool to pick these? Like it's this awful no man's land in between. Um, and so you, it's really tough to sort of, you know, it's really easy to get 10 pieces built by a small CM like us. It's miserable, miserable to get 10 pieces built by a huge CM like J bill. They, they, not only do they not want the business, they'll they'll do it terribly. Yeah, just ask them. They're they're going to be completely honest about it. I'm not I'm not throwing them under the bus. Ask anybody, they'll tell you. No, please, God, do not. You know, J Bill would be like, do not send us a ten piece order. Right. Um, and then the hundred thousand piece order, you come to us. They're like, here's three names. Go call them. 
because <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not going to, we're going to just make you, your life so miserable trying to build a hundred thousand pieces. It's just, so, so that's actually really a, a pretty wise uh, thing you just said. And not every company follows that wisdom. Some companies, some salespeople within companies just don't know the sure. word no. Right. Uh, right. We learned a lot of salespeople. We don't have salespeople. <laughs> well, that's probably why you, 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 don't, get, you why. don't get stuck with orders like that. Right. But um, a lot of, a lot of salespeople just don't like to say no. They like to say yes to everything. Uh, particularly yeah. if they're making fear-based decisions, you can get in the whole psychology of that. But um, yeah. to be able to tell a customer, you know, you're not right for us uh, or, we're, or we're not right for you, you know, uh, is, right. is courageous. And, and you're saving the customer time and money and, and frustration and you're saving yourself time and money and frustration adding to your bottom line by saying no. So that's a, yeah. not, not enough companies have that mindset, right? Right. They just, that's and right. when we were a young company, we did the same thing. We said yes to everybody because mm -hmm. we were, oh, yeah. you know, it was like, Hey, if we got it, they didn't get it. So win-win, right? right? And it, it turns out that's not win-win. No. <laughs> that is no. definitely not win-win. It's the old 80, 20 principle, right? You know, it's, it's target, target the the sweet spot and just forget the other 20% that is that it would absorb 80% of your time. It's mm -hmm. it's it's classic. Yeah. Target yeah. no know, know what you're good at, sell what you're good at and move on. Don't don't you know, don't accept every Well, for example, up until very recently, we 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 would no bid any orders that required cleaning. Just right. nope. We don't we don't clean. We absolutely we we cannot build your boards. Um, that's changing now that we have a fancy new, uh, aqueous, clean, <laughs> aqueous cleaner. Um, but yeah, you know, we, uh, back in the day, honestly, absolutely. Back in the day, uh, 10 years ago, somebody wanted a clean board. It's like, yeah, yeah. Send it over. We'll figure it Watch out. It in the right? sink. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. And then eventually we're like, oh, what are we doing? This is no, yeah. we can't keep doing this. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, that's good. Um, so let's assume Chris, that you don't, you're not affiliated with Worthington and sure. you have, um, let's do it. Yeah. I'm it happy to be agnostic <laughs> and, and you have a <laughs> thousand boards to build or whatever number. Uh, and you're looking for a contract manufacturer. Okay. What are you knowing what you know, sure. um, but Worthington doesn't exist. Uh, what are you looking for in a contract manufacturer? What, what, what's so, your, on your shopping list? Really? Like, if I, the first thing I have to do is I have to ask myself what my organization is like, am I working for, am I working for Bose, but I'm in a small team, um, within Bose, it gets a little trickier, uh, because you know, there's, there's all these sort of safety requirements and yada, 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 is this going to be shipped? And it gets pretty complicated. Like Bose probably is not a great customer, uh, for a shop like Worthington assembly, uh, even, even for a small team. But am I, you know, am I in a small company, to, you know, from from two people to, to 50 people, then uh, I probably don't want to try to work with uh, a big uh, J-Bill. I probably want to find another company about my size and uh, a small team over there that I can work through details. And I can ask kind of very specific questions of and get those things answered quickly because, you know, maybe it's my first time place in a thousand pieces. I've only ever built things on my workbench before. And, and I know what I'm doing. I know how to assemble a circuit board. What, how hard could it be? <laughs> but then when you're like, okay, no, I actually have to get these into production. I have all kinds of questions. Yeah. You need somebody you can ask questions of. And, and that's probably, that's something we talk about all the time. Our favorite customers, I'm going to flip sides here. 
our favorite customers tend to be customers about our size, right? So we're, you know, 30 something employees now, maybe, maybe over 40 at this point. Um, and, but for a long time, we were just like 10 people and we, we love to find the one or two person companies. And now we like to find the, the 12 or 20 person companies and they tend to fit us really, really well. And they, they're really happy with our work and, and we're really happy with them as a customer. So it, it, what kinds of, how detailed would you um, crawl into your potential CM's business? Would you look at the brands of assembly equipment they have or the, the, um, the age of the equipment? And would you look into PM schedules to, you know, because if they have a line down situation, you have a, a supply problem. Right. So, I mean, right. how, how detailed would you recommend now you may not recommend it to your customers because you don't necessarily want all of them crawling through your PM records, but, yeah. but, but you know, in a, in a, in an abstract uh, scale, um, how, how detailed should a customer's due diligence be to a potential contract manufacturer? Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to like, I, I think it would make a lot of sense to start out with, if you have something really small and simple, just in, in your not, overly concerned with that particular build, send it to a potential CM. You can, you can kind of go sight unseen, right? Just see how that flows. See what, see what the business relationship is like with the person doing the quoting and, and how they ship it and how it comes back to you and how it looks like, like you can spin your wheels for days doing all kinds of due diligence. Like don't, don't screw around with all that. Just give a, you know, like, like if, if you go to a new restaurant, you're not going to, you're not going to you know, spend $40 on a dish. You're going to buy, you know, you see how the burger is or something. Not that you particularly like burgers, but you want to see what the environment's like. You want to see what the staff is like. You want to get a feel for it. And then you go back and you're like, okay, now how's the chef? You know? Um, I don't think Gordon Ramsay thing going in the kitchen and, you know, screaming at the, at the the cooks, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, don't bother with all that. Don't do that. Right. I really don't think like the brand of equipment matters at all. I like maybe a little bit, you know, but, but not too much. It really doesn't matter all that much. Um, even the type of equipment, like um, at the end of the day, ECRA deck and, and uh, MPM, they're going to, they're going to do an excellent job of getting paste on the board. Uh, you know, Universal, ASM, uh, Fuji, Juki, they're going to do a great job of getting parts on the board. They, like these are, these are robust companies at this point. There's not a lot of fly-by-night companies left. Uh, you know, if they've been in business a while, you don't have to worry too much about their equipment, in, in my opinion. Um, and I and if I was outsourcing, I would not be overly concerned. I would, I would be a little concerned if they had all brand new equipment, because I've seen I've I've actually been on the side where um, I've been installing equipment brand new. And I go, wow, this is, you got a lot of, you got a like, you know, four pick and place machines lined up here. And this is, so I'm looking, I'm just doing the math. I'm going, man, you guys, just, I hope you got the business for this is $2 million worth of, of equipment. I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you have the business to push through it. And then, you know, it's like, Hey, where pay us. Where, where's the, where's the money for that machine we installed? And lo and behold, they're gone. Right. Cause they yeah, couldn't fill right. that line. Right. So I, I would be a little concerned if you notice overly new equipment, I'd also be a little concerned if you notice overly old equipment, uh, uh, you know, they're not investing in the company. Um, you know, they're may, you know, the owner's got a 6,000 square foot house and a boat on the Cape 
and uh, he's <laughs> he's got 30-year-old pick-and-place machines, then, right. yeah, you should probably be a little concerned about that. But, you know, uh, some somewhere in the middle is probably appropriate as far as, like, I would kind of consider age of the equipment to be important. Look for investment. Like, hey, when's the last time you did buy a piece of equipment? Right. Like, did you make an investment last year in your company? Like, did you, are you working on your company? Uh, are you working to improve your company? So you're okay. looking for that, responsible that's, that's investment, yes. right? Not just yeah. like overly invested where someone right. is going to drop you for a slightly higher paying customer so they can keep their, yep. their, their mortgage paid. Uh, and you're also avoiding people who are, like you said, spending all the time at the Cape, you know, with their. <laughs> 35 year old Amistar semi automatic <laughs> through hole. Amistar. Holy Remember cow, that name from the past? Deep. Contact oh systems, all that, right? Yeah. Right. You know, uh, cut and clinch machines, you know, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So, we still have one of those. We, I don't remember. We, whenever we get an order for like tons of through hole, we have to pull out the old cut and clinch machine. Right. It's so rare anymore, but we literally. Here's the, so the one with the little the, laser the, light that shows you yes, points yes. to where to, where to insert the here's the little here's the dirty little secret about it every time we use it for a big order it breaks on us every single time and there's only one guy that we know of that we can that can reliably fix it so every single time we do the quote we don't include like we don't break it out as a line item but we we flush in like a 500 dollars extra because we just we know we're gonna have you know to you're gonna have to pay for machine. a service call well, it's funny, years Sorry. ago in another life. So please, um, you people, please use surface mount for the love of all that is good and great it, in this world. Exactly. Many, many years ago in another life, I was in the printing industry and we had this plate maker, this old plate maker. It was built in the 60s. And and this was the Oh, wait, hang 80s. on, hang on. I'm, I'm a little young. What is a plate maker? Oh, it, it makes plates that you put on the presses that uh, form the impressions to print. So when you print... What's called? Oh, you're talking printing. about like like paper printing. Paper printing, okay. yeah, not you. modern, yeah. you know, right. digital printing. This was, you know, back. Sure. They, uh, and there were metal plates and there were paper plates, but basically, yep. put the image on the paper and then they go on a roller. Anyway, this machine was built in the '60s, and this was the uh, early '80s at the time. So we got this machine used, and it was still working. And I remember every once in a while it would break down, and you know, we'd call the manufacturer who was still in business, although they hadn't built that machine in a long time. And they'd, they'd send some young kid in and he'd look at it and go, or he'd look around the shop and go, where's your plate machine? I was like, you're standing in front of it. And he'd go, wow. And, and then we'd just ask him to leave. We would just say, no, sorry. We want the old guy who's, you know, debating yeah. whether he should retire that, that was there when those were built, right? Because he was the yeah. only person that could, that could fix it. So yeah, kind of the same thing. It became a tribal legacy uh, kind of thing, and you've you've heard the the old anecdote of um, uh, the you know the factory lays off the the guy in in his sixties that you know they are having to make cuts yada yada yada, and then the machine breaks down and nobody can get it working. Have you heard this one before? I don't think so. And what happens next? All right, so he comes in and he says, "Yeah, yeah, I can fix it. Um, uh, it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars." Oh yeah, well we're losing you know thousand dollars an hour, or whatever. Just just get it running. Okay, no problem. Um, you know, I'll be right back. He goes out to his truck, comes back in with a big freaking hammer. He just boom, slams the thing up the side of the machine, just fires right up. Everything's running, you know, spitting out uh product constantly. And they go, what? We're, we're not paying you $10,000 for that. He goes, no, you're, you're paying me a dollar to hit the thing with a hammer. You're paying me $9,999 for knowing where to hit it with a exactly. hammer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
I remember once many years ago, we, we did a service call. Uh, someone called and said something wasn't working. So we told them to check A, B, or C. And, you know, the response was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I checked that. It's, I checked oh, that. Of yeah. Course. yeah. So we sent someone yeah. out 3,000 miles, right, uh, coast to coast. Yeah. And it was one of the things we asked them to check. It was literally like turn the fuse back, turn the breaker back on. And then the guy goes, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to pay you the whole amount because it was too easy. And Oh, come like, on. You're not paying us for this. You're paying us no. to sit on an airplane for, for five and a half yeah. hours and, and stay in a hotel and rent a car. And, and, you know, and you're kind of paying a penalty for not following our instructions before, yeah. right? I mean, we told you to check the fuse box. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good reason to know your customer as well. So, what are some of the, some of the common mistakes customers make in either selecting a CM or working? in a relationship with the CM, I'm sure, you know, without identifying any customers, clearly. No. What, what are some of the, some of the common um, frustrations on, on your end? It, it really just comes down to too many assumptions, right? It's just too many assumptions. It's, it's um, j just because something has gone one way for so long doesn't, and then you go to a new CM doesn't mean they're going to do it the same way. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. So we had we had this one customer uh, who would order all of his circuit boards and he he liked to have black solder mask. And he just loved black solder mask and all his orders came through black solder mask. And then one day, you know, we're explaining to him like, ah, you know, we're kind of struggling with this one part and going on and on. And no, you know, we never suggested and he never asked, well, maybe we should try green solder mask because it was this tiny little micro BGA and we couldn't get the black mask down in between. And, and I'm not, I'm, I say we, but I'm talking about our, we, we buy the bare board for the customer. And so we're, we're doing the sourcing and everything. They couldn't get the black. And then as soon as somebody was like, Hey, why, why don't we try green solder mask? It was like, Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. We could build these all day. <laughs> so it's, it's really just like making too many assumptions and not having the conversation about, you know, um, Hey, you know, this is, this is something I want to try. Can you handle it? Um, you know, just send sometimes sending the order over the wall and not asking like, Hey, have you ever built a part like this before? No. Um, okay. Well then, then we got to have a conversation about it. I'll give you another example. Probably, probably an even better one, not so much about bare boards, but, um, we had a, a customer, great, one of our just easiest customers to work with. He, um, he was using the new Texas Instruments X4 SON. It's this whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. It's this crazy weird part. And I we had never seen it before. He had never used it before. It was kind of a brand new part for some kind of tiny little voltage regulator. And hey, have you ever used this part before? Uh, no, we never have. And um, what is a typical... CM fear, like they're going to be afraid to say, no, we've never seen it before. We don't know how to handle it because then, oh, we're not going to get the order. But it was so much better because we said, no, we, we've never seen that before. Um, let's, let's test it out, right? Can, can, you, can we make some dummy boards? Can we work together on this project? Make some dummy boards, try some stencil configurations, try some layout configurations, different thicknesses, you know, until we just, we just nail this. And that's what we did. And, and then when it came to actually building the product, it just went butter smooth, right? Because now we've figured out how to handle it. Having those kinds of conversations and just not assuming that the CM can handle it. It's like, well, that's your job. You're supposed to build circuit right. boards. That's your job. 
uh, yeah, but you know, even a mechanic is, who's never seen a Ferrari before, isn't going to know how to change the spark plugs, right? Like, yeah, he's, it's his job to change the spark plugs, but he's never seen an F40. <laughs> right. Where are they? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Um, have, have you ever run into a situation where, well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, several years ago, I was hired as an expert witness. I've talked about that, this experience on this show before. Um, I was hired as an expert witness in a civil litigation matter between an OEM and a contract manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the short of it was the contract manufacturer was given a statement of work and they performed exactly to that statement of work. And okay. it turned out the statement of work was defective. And oh boy. In, in addition, the statement of work required uh, certain types of testing um, to go on. Um, uh, bake outs and, and, and testing under high temperature and humidity. Mm. And when the ovens started breaking, uh, the, their customer, the OEM, uh, told them, don't worry about, you know, just cut the test in half. Half the ovens broke, so they basically cut the test time down by half. So Wait a second, keep... you're saying that the test chamber oven? Yeah, they broke? had about test cha- 10 ovens or so. Five okay. of them became inoperational. So in the, their customer... So the CM's customer said, just cut the test time in half sure. with half the oven so you can still maintain production flow. Because the, oh. right? So, so what was important to them oh, was not no. the testing, it was the throughput, right? And that's because the OEM right. was, was funded by venture capitalists yeah. who were you know, showing up at every meeting, looking at numbers, going ship, ship, right. ship, ship, ship. So, so the CM basically had them sign off on it it's like, okay. And as the product started failing, yeah. 60,000 boards had to be recalled. Oh, and uh, and they, uh, they, this contract manufacturer, got sued because yeah. the OEM said, yeah, we told you to do this, but you're the experts. You should have known better and you should have told us no. Right? Oh, it was, it was That's shoot a shoot the messenger scenario. kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, or they should have been a messenger. Now, maybe there's, there's some validity to, to that uh, from a legal standpoint. I don't know. Uh, but I was, uh, I was um, helping represent the, and defend the, the contract manufacturer and saying like, no, I mean, they, there were email chains that, that warned that we do not recommend you do this. We recommend X, Y, Z. And then they, we got responses back saying, no, we need to ship and, you know, we'll give you permission to do it. And that still got them sued. So yeah. Do you ever have to have tough conversations with your with your customers? Is it like All the time. you can't you can't do this? It doesn't work yep. this way, right? And All how do time. you handle that? Uh, just just perfect honesty, just perfect complete honesty. Be perfectly open. Explain the risks. You know, um, I I don't think I've ever been in a situation where a customer said, "Yeah, it's okay." And I still felt really uncomfortable about it. Like we usually come up with some kind of a resolution. Like I guess the one thing I can think of is we we from time to time it's it's way more um, uh, way excuse me way less common now than it used to be. But we used to see orders or designs all the time that would have vias in the pad of like a gullwing QFP or you know a capa- like a twelve six capacitor. It'd be a via like a, like an open plated via, not, not even like filled or plated over just an open via. And you'd be, you'd be scratching your head going, this thing looks like garbage. Like that's never, you know, that solder joint's going to fail the first, <laughs> first time it sees a 
freezing temperature or something, you know, a couple thermal cycles and that's gone. Um, and we used to come across these things and we would be in the middle of it and we'd go, whoa, 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 we have to stop. We have to call, we have to talk to this customer. And the conversation isn't like, hey, you put vias in these boards. We, you know, these things look like garbage. It's like, hey, look, we, we should have caught this. We didn't catch it. Now we're in the middle of production, right? We're, we've stopped production. We're noticing this issue. Here's pictures, right? Take pictures, nice high resolution pictures, video microscope, explain the situation, explain the risks, and then offer a solution. That's really what you need to do all the time is you need to say like, you need to say this, this is not the right way to do it. And don't just leave it there. Cause that, that is just a way to start arguments. Really. It's a way to just make people angry and frustrated. You say, this is not the way to do it. Here is what we suggest. I, I recommend that, you know, we add solder paste or, or touch these up with a soldering iron and it's going to cost X number of dollars per board. And, and that, that is the solution we've come up with. You know, the alternative is we stop, we refabricate these and we fill the vias or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And, and so give them some options as to how to move forward, but don't agree to just keep assembling the boards with almost no solder, you know, unless I, you know, I, occasionally it'll be like, it's 10 boards and they're like, I'm just putting on my bench. I just need to, I just needed a dummy right. board to try out this new BGA or something. Right. You look at you know, the like context okay, in which well, right, the boards are going to be used. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're going to throw it out in four weeks. All right. That's fine. But, um, you know, if you're shipping this, you no, don't for, please don't ship this. <laughs> so this is yeah, kind of a segue to my, to my next conversation. Yeah. And that is probably a partial answer to my next question, which is, you know, in today's somewhat cutthroat economy, you know, I think the proliferation of Amazon and, you know, has probably led to everyone's looking at price, right? Not very many people sure. are looking at value. So mm -hmm. let's assume you bid a, a job out at a hundred dollars a board and mm -hmm. someone else bids it at 70 and someone else bids it at 300, what, whatever. <laughs> Beyond the price, two ninety nine, two ninety nine, ninety nine. Right, right. Exactly. I should have been two ninety nine. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what? What? Besides getting the product back, um, per per the specification. Besides you shipping a board to your customer, what other value added is are, are in that board? In other words, you know, you're not just paying to print paste on a board and right. mount a component and run it through an oven at a specified temperature. There's, there's more to it than just the completed product, right? So what yep. are the value adds that customers should consider that are in the price of the assembly? So th that's a, that's actually kind of a, I have, I have a couple thoughts about this. So one could argue that like, like, let's not talk about Mexico and China versus us, because that's going to have a drastic impact on cost. Right. And, and there's just no way around it. China is going to be less expensive. Mexico is going to be less expensive. It's just duh. We don't have to have that conversation, but let's say CM in South Deerfield, Massachusetts and CM in North Deerfield, Massachusetts, which I don't even think that town exists, but let's just theor theoretical CM right nearby similar workforce, similar labor costs, yada, yada, yada. Um, there is a obligation from your supplier 
to be maximizing um, their efficiency. So if the CM in South Deerfield is charging you $70 and the CM in North Deerfield is charging you $100, there could be very little value add from that $100 CM if they're not focused on lean manufacturing principles, efficiency, intelligent workforce, you know, educating their workforce, um, uh, and all these sorts of things where they literally can build it for $70 a board versus the other CM has to charge you $100 per board uh, because they are more efficient. And, and it's my opinion that your CM should be focused on these things and should have a culture of driving towards efficiency um, and, and trying to eliminate waste and everything that they do. So that's kind of not answering your question, but, but that's something I like to emphasize because it's something that I consider very valuable and very important in, in our culture at Wordington Assembly. But more importantly, uh, um, let's say that they're both driving towards efficiency and one CM is $100, the other CM is $70. Where, where is the value add? Perhaps why, why would you end up spending 30 more dollars per board? Um, really, I think there's a lot of like, um, gotchas in this industry, like not gotchas. What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like, like, like gremlins. <laughs> that's, that's a better way of putting there it. There you go. Like, do, are they, you you get the it, just because you look at a finished board in your hand doesn't mean that it's fabricated the same. It doesn't mean that they went through the same process. Right? Did they have the same type of temperature control in in during reflow? How do you know that their their ESD standards are are being followed and that they they didn't damage this thing microscopically, not just microscopically, but like electron microscopically <laughs> damaged that? Because that's what we're talking about with ESD damage. Um, what about what about did they have to do any hand soldering were those technicians uh uh do they understand what uh what a solder joint really is and and how to prevent cold solder joints and how to handle ground and to to pre-bake the board you're not pre-bake but uh, uh, uh preheat the board before they start soldering the ground you know just so you may not notice these little things like a whole fillet that comes all the way up to the top of your through hole pin underneath the connector because the, the the shroud of your connector is covering it all. Um, a, a cheaper CM that builds it for $70, they may just sling that thing over their wave solder or selective soldering machine or hand solder it with you know the person that they just trained for the past three months. Meanwhile, you've got barely a solder joint that you can only see on the bottom side of the board, not a complete solder joint that won't fail over the life of the product. Right. So there's these little gremlins in manufacturing that uh, a, a quality CM that's been around for a long time, has been doing this for a long time, has a staff that's that's been well-trained and has, has been doing the same thing for a long time, knows so that your product won't fail and you won't have all kinds of recalls in the future uh, versus the other guys who are cutting all these corners <laughs> to get it to ship. And, and yeah, it looks good. You put it on your bench. You're like, Hey, these look the same. I'm, I'm only going to spend $70 on it when you don't really know the gremlins that you might see from ESD damage or cold solder joints, you know, a couple years from now. Right. Now that makes a lot of sense. Uh, part of the value added is, is, uh, I would assume is a, it's a contract manufacturer's quality certs. What types mm -hmm. of quality certifications or 
affiliations would you expect a contract manufacturer to have? Yeah, I would say you're you're like okay. So when Worthington first when 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 I first started working at Worthington, there was no IPC training, there was no J standard, there was no uh, ISO, there was no like um, we we had to build to all that right and and. Thank goodness we had people that trusted us that allowed us to maintain our business while we could build to that. Um, but but now, like if if I was outsourcing boards, I would absolutely want to at least see: Do you have IPC uh, uh, trained people? And it's not so much that like my my this is all right. I wish I could somehow disconnect my name from Worthington Assembly for a moment while I say this, but like. I don't really believe so much that a person with an IPC certificate is necessarily a better solder than a person without without an IPC certificate. But if you go to a CM that is willing to make that investment, it's right. it's it's just a signal, right? Well, they it's become a, a known quantity versus yeah. a potentially you know, potential good, potential bad, right? Right. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people without certifications that are really good solderers, maybe Excellent. even better than Excellent. those with, but at least the ones Absolutely. with, we know are good, right? Yeah, because we've we've had situations where, like, again, early on, we had people who were doing hand soldering for us because we had a bunch of these boards that literally could only be hand soldered. Oh, nightmare. Those are gone. We redesigned all of them to SMT. <laughs> anyway, and, and they were fantastic. I mean, beautiful solder joints, excellent quality. They were so talented at what they do. Didn't even know how to spell IPC, let alone have a certificate, right? And then we would hire people from other CMs. We had a few CMs go out of business nearby and we would hire them. And um, and they would come in, oh yeah, I'm IPC certified. And you'd sit them down on a bench and you'd look at them and you're like, what? No, that's, that is not how you solder. Like you can't do that, <laughs> but they have a certificate. And that's what I mean by like, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're going to be a better soldering person than than somebody else. But if you find a CM that is making that investment. So for example, we have we actually have an in-house trainer. That's a program that a CM can do. They can they can send a person to a class and they become a trainer for their company. And that's a real in my opinion, that is a real signal of of a CM that cares about quality because they're they're willing to not not just send their people to IPC training, but they're actually willing to go the extra level and get a certified trainer in-house right and and now you're really now you're really um uh sending a signal out there that you care another thing is being an ipc member is a big deal i keep saying ipc like all your listeners know what it is i hope they do i think at this point they probably our trade or yeah, i think i think the majority <laughs> yeah. of our listeners know but okay. for those that don't okay. uh, i there, there's two major trade organizations uh in our industry one is ipc uh and uh they're the standards um organization we create standards at ipc uh, and then there's SMTA, which is a chapter-based um, uh, surface mount technology association. Is what that stands for. Mm -hmm. IPC technically doesn't stand for anything anymore. Um, it, anymore, it's yeah. Old Institute of Print Circuits, I think, many many years ago. But yeah, that that it, it's just IPC now. But just for those who, for those two or three listeners that may have <laughs> stumbled across this thinking it was something else, uh, that's what the, that's what our associations are. You're welcome. You're welcome, mom. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. No, so, no, we're too uh, far in for any of my friends to keep listening. They only listen to the first 30 seconds. Yeah. My mom will listen to the whole thing. Yeah, there you go. Good. Hi, so, mom. Uh, but the other thing I want to point out is that we, we recently joined IPC as, as a member company. And uh, well, recently, 
it's been a few years now. I'm not sure how long we've had it. But one of the things that you start to get exposure to is like sort of a validation of your process. So for example, we've been making quality circuit boards for, for decades, right? But it's only f mostly from kind of like tribal knowledge. Like we, we do X and we get Y and it works and customers are happy and product shipping and we're, we're solving problems for people, right? Uh, but we, we, we had the situation recently where a customer came to us and they said, I don't like the way that my solder joints look on um, my, my QFNs. Uh, these, these sort of leadless devices. Well, you know, gosh, in the wash business, you know, all about QFNs, but anyway, we don't, I don't like them. there's not yeah. enough solder there for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone and, likes QFNs. Uh, I, I have this theory and I may have shared this on your show. I don't remember <laughs> that QFNs were, were invented. Well, QFNs yes. are proof that what happens when you don't tell your children, you love them enough. Yeah, they either grow right. up to be sociopaths and serial killers, or they grow up to invent bottom terminated components. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's, QFNs yeah, that's QFNs. So he came, he came to us. He said, I don't, you know, I'm used to my other CM. Here's, here's the, what the look like from my other CM. And we looked at it and we're like, yeah, son of a gun, that looks a lot better than ours. And, um, and I was kind of scratching my head because I, I was like, what do you tell me, pal? I've shipped hundreds of thousands of QFNs. Like we know how to solder QFNs, man. And we've got them shipping in thousands of you know, whatever. Right. So that was my gut reaction, too much pride. And then, um, he goes, yeah, no, I, I really don't like them. Like I, I can't, if, you know, I like working with you guys, but you got to figure this out for me. So one of the things that having IPC did for us is you get access to, uh, their documentation. You have to pay for it, but you, you, you can get, and there's a whole, like, there's a really like really thorough document on bottom terminated components, like unbelievably thorough. And so we bought it and read it over and I'm looking at it. I'm going, man, son of a gun. We, we are not doing this right. Like we're probably doing the bare minimum. Like we're, we're meeting the spec, but just like we were probably just like barely meeting the spec. And for most people like, yeah, it works. It's, you know, it's fine. And then this customer revealed to me like, no, I, I kind of expect it to be at the top of the spec. And having this document helped us get there. So, that, so that's another thing. Like, I guess getting back to your original question, if I'm shopping for a CM, seeing them as a member of the IPC organization tells me that there's at least a handful of people inside that organization that care about educating themselves and learning best practices and trying to constantly improve. Just that's really, it's the same answer to my last question. Are they constantly trying to improve themselves right. and get better? Right. Yeah. They're plugged into a, um, to, with a group of professionals that are standards-based, quality-based, things like that. So the, and you have a lot more resources, you know, particularly in a small company environment, you can't have subject matter exactly. experts in everything, right? So yep. uh, you can rely on the standards and, and the- And we don't have time to run the workbooks all the tests and, and experiments and- Exactly, yeah. but mm -hmm. all that's already been done. So yeah, you can benefit yep. from that. Um, how are, are the component shortages dealing uh landing in your in your industry i hear you know, we in our you know we manufacture stuff as you know uh yeah and uh, we see a lot more component shortages not just component shortages other um hardware shortages too uh, that that you know, we're spending way more time sourcing parts and we are we've increased our inventory probably by more than 100 percent 
Um, right. Just we went from just in time to just in case, right? So you're uh, part of the problem. We're, we're <laughs> every you know it's it's kind of like the toilet paper shortage at the beginning That's of exactly the pandemic, it right? It it is causing everybody here shortage, and then all of a sudden there is a shortage. Right. Exactly. So we're yeah, yeah. we're contributing to the shortage. I'm sure, although. You know, we're a small company as, as small you potatoes, are. So yeah. if it, there's enough small potatoes out there, eventually it happens. Yeah. We are in in mass and cumulatively helping uh, to uh, exacerbate the problem. But but um, how how do you guys handle that? And and has it become an issue with your customers and yourself? And and how do you how do you work around that? So uh, quick plug again for our podcast. We we actually interviewed two supply chain managers, like the whole East Coast of the United States supply chain managers for DigiKey on our show a couple of weeks ago, talking about this whole subject and what, why it's happening, what are the causes and how is it getting worse and when are we going to get out of it? And spoiler alert, it's going to be a while. But um, I feel like, you know, have you ever heard the, the story of um, um, when, was it Japan had some kind of a, a rice crisis? There, there was, a, maybe it wasn't Japan, maybe it was um, another uh, Southeast Asian country was having a crisis with rice. And, and so then there was a run on rice and then all these people were starving, right? Because they, they didn't get in line early enough and they didn't get the food that they needed. And, you know, um, and then it was literally just, maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe this is why I'm thinking of Japan. I think it was Japan that said, Hey, look, we've got a, we've got an emergency. The, the national government of Japan had an emergency store of rice. And they said, we're going to, we're going to release this because we hear about all these starving people. They never touched a grain of it. Just telling people that it was available. Everybody stopped buying so much. Everybody right. assumed the shortage was gone. And guess right. what? The shortage was gone. <laughs> right. It, it, was, uh, it was self-induced. It was a self-induced fear-based right. shortage. Right. Just like so th so, toilet paper. So what's happened, yeah, what's happened is there has been legitimate shortages and then everybody hears shortages and now it's gotten worse. Now it's on gotten the, worse. On yeah. the Beyond the original state of the problem, right? It's hitting us. It's it's hitting us hard because we are, for most of our business, we are quite literally just in time. Like we won't even like we will not have parts on a shelf until you place an order. And and once you place an order, then we go buy those parts. So if you wanted to place an order with us, um, the first thing we're going to do is check inventory availability, and we'll come back to you and say, you know, out of these eighty part numbers, six of these are unavailable. You know what can we do about it? Here's some crosses that we found kind of a thing. And that's the kind of stuff you do. You just try to work through it. You just try to find alternatives. We, we actually helped some customers redesign their boards. So we said, Hey, you know, there's none of these, um, voltage regulators available. Um, you know, but we noticed that the same voltage regulator is available in a, a different package an SOT 23, six or something like that, rather than your, whatever it was before. And, uh, you know, we help them, with the layout and figure out how to get that to work for their product. And then, you know, they implement it into their design. Now they can use either voltage regulator, you know, they can use the SO8 or the SOT 236. And, and so we, a little bit of engineering help, a little bit of just the purchasing folks trying to find some, uh, you know, we've, we're doing one recently where, um, there's some suspect parts. And so the customer is like, Hey, I'm going to buy them. I'm going to bring them in. They're, they're coming from overseas. And I want to, I want you to build just a handful of boards with randomly selected parts from this lot and let's see if they work kind of a thing, you know? So you're, it's really getting bottom of the barrel now where we're starting to right. have like build boards just to test the parts and sure, uh, right. see if they're good enough. So well, that actually all is, kinds of stuff like 
that. And you're in in this answer, you're actually it's a twofer because you're actually also adding to your previous answer about what value added. Oh, there you, you know, go. In yeah. addition to getting the board at X dollars a board, you know, what other stuff is in there that you know beyond the components in this solder paste, right? It's yep. and, and this is this is part of it. Um, in in your company's specific case, Worthington Assembly, what is your sweet customer? What's your sweet spot for a customer um, in terms of production and type of assembly? You know, what what's the Nirvana customer for you besides being able to pay right on time right and um, being pleasant to work with? But what from a logistical standpoint, what what's perfect for you guys? Yeah, that that's a great question, and and it's something we actually do talk about quite a bit. So we we would much rather have um, like a hundred customers that are giving us ten thousand dollars a year rather than have one million dollar customer. Uh, just from a like a risk management perspective, we really strongly kind of prefer smaller teams to work with, smaller customers to work with. Um, uh, more, more complex products because we, that's where, like we just, we were just discussing, we can bring some value to the more complex products. We were building, um, we were building these boards for a customer for a while that they were a lot of fun to build. They were really easy. It was all like 0805s and all these big parts and everything. And then we're building a ton of them and then they, they're, they're in Mexico now. Right. So it's like, <laughs> you can't keep those guys very long because once they discover how easy it is to build their product, they're not going to want to continue to build it in, right. in expensive new England. Right. Um, so we like to see a bit of complexity. Uh, we're happy when the customers are a bit concerned about their IP because you know, your IP doesn't leave our building, you know, and it's controlled and we have secure servers and everything. And um, I think that's one of the major we, advantages of, of doing, uh, of choosing, yeah, choosing uh, U.S. based or at least at least North American based, but specifically U.S. based um, manufacturers mm -hmm. uh, to build your boards is you don't have to send that IP overseas. And because yep. I mean, let's face it, uh, certain countries are just well known. Their reputation is pretty well known for um, not being as secure as we are here. And sure. I would assume if you're doing ITAR type work, work that falls under ITAR, then obviously you have to. Yeah. Keep stuff here. Are, are, are you guys ITAR uh, registered? No, we don't actually. It's an interesting that thing. Yeah. Well, we don't, we don't do any defense or ITAR work or anything, you know, we haven't had those kinds of requirements yet. Um, and, and it's <laughs> another piece of our culture is, is okay. So I talked about this a little bit earlier. We really kind of can't stand red tape and, and uh, inefficiency and ITAR and, and all the, uh, you're right AS up there. Yeah. Sure. And, and all that. Sure. It's like, that's just like a headache we don't want to deal with. <laughs> right. So we just kind of keep targeting customers that we don't have to worry about those sorts of things. And so far it's worked, you know, could we be bigger by now and make more money by now if we did? Of course, absolutely. But I, I kind of think it's like, have you, have you ever heard the old uh, red water versus blue water analogy no. where, um, yeah. So like, I, I don't know, I'm going to totally botch the origination of it, but like in my mind, I'm picturing like, ancient, you know, like Spanish, English, uh, naval warfare. And well, I say ancient, but let's say, you know, maybe a few hundred years ago. And, um, uh, you don't want to be the boat in the red water. Cause that means everybody's just battling each other like crazy. And there's all kinds of blood in the water. You want to be in the blue water, <laughs> you want to be out where it's safe and easy and you got easy pickings and, and like there's not for nothing, but 
you know, in the United States, a huge majority of the business uh, of circuit board assembly is related to uh, defense. It's an enormous market based on uh, the national budget. And uh, there's a lot of competition out there for that. And uh, I don't know, there's less so for the kind of more industrial control, you know, kind of quasi consumer level product, niche products. Uh, and uh, we've, yeah, we've kind of stayed focused on those sorts of things. But even within those sorts of things, people still don't want to be ripped off, right? That's <laughs> so right. They're, they're, they're not going to send that overseas if they're, if they're uh, particularly concerned with their IP. So yeah. it doesn't even have to be a regulatory thing. It can honestly just be a, just I just a general don't, concern. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I just don't know what's going to happen once it leaves uh, these borders, because within these borders, there's, there's laws and there's litigation and there's, there's ways of controlling these things when That's it right. leaves these borders. There's recourse. There's recourse yeah. for things here where right. there's less recourse in other places or yep. a different method exactly. of recourse. So what does the future hold for Worthington? Where do you see yourselves in, in the next uh, five to 10 years? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I love my job. I love uh, I love educating people on what we do. It's one of my favorite things. It's the reason um, we do the podcast. It's the reason that uh, I'm happy to be on the show here today. And uh, so, me personally, I would love to continue to be working at Worthington Assembly, continue to educate the customer base, and working with customers to solve problems and figure out their solutions and these sorts of things. The company itself, I hope, just continues to nice, clean, steady growth. I, I would love to continue to create jobs here in Western Massachusetts. It's an amazing place in the world to live. It's just like, it's got everything, absolutely everything you could want. Um, you know, a, you know, you have to drive a little bit of ways to get to the beach <laughs> hour and a half or so, but it's not that bad, you know, be not careful like how, be careful how much yeah. you sell Western Massachusetts, because I live in oh. California. And when you, and my, my listeners that are in California are all going to want to yeah. move there and yeah. <laughs> you don't want that. So we're moving everywhere. Yeah. Right. So, um, don't, don't let uh, us yeah. add Western mass to your list. We'd love to see just kind of steady, continuous growth. We've always said, if we could just continue to do 10% a year right now, we're, we're way beyond that way, way beyond that. And it's, it's a little painful for everybody internally. A lot of, it gets frustrating when you grow this kind of a business that quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, we're on target for, you know, pr probably over 50% this year, which is a really difficult thing to do, uh, to grow that aggressively. Um, but it's, uh, it's happening and, and we're managing it and we're doing the best we can. I'd like to see it slow down just a, just a little bit. <laughs> the growth catch feels your breath good, a little bit, right? Catch your breath a little bit. Let people, let people kind of breathe and, and have more time for working on the company. Right. Cause right now I'm doing so much of my day-to-day -day work. I'm working in the company, in the company like right. Physically on the floor, building something or ordering a stencil or programming a machine. And, and I want to get back to working on the company and, and researching new technologies and, and helping customers and, and finding those sweet cherry customers like you talked about. Sure. So, um, yeah, a little bit of slowdown in the growth would be, would actually be somewhat nice. I have another podcast that I do called concept to creation, where we talk to entrepreneurs within the mm -hmm. EMS space. And that's a regular theme of, of entrepreneurs. They go from a journey of working in, uh, their yep. company, you know, 70 hours a week, whatever it takes, yep. chief cook and bottle washer, uh, to eventually being able to work on their company. And when I ask most of the entrepreneurs, when I ask them, what is your definition of success? It's never money. It's always the independence to be able to step yes. back and work on 
and rather than in and be up in the yep. crow's nest and not in the day to day and in the minutia of the company. That is the answer for most people's um, version of success, right? So yep. I, I, I will I say, agree I, with I that. will say the owners of Worthington have done, uh, have found a nice balance of that. Um, they've, they've hired well, well above sort of like what they need to. So for example, um, uh, there's a few people in our company that you, you look at our backgrounds and you go, what, why are you working for this, you know, tiny little organization? You've come from, <laughs> you, you know, you've come from yeah. this other thing. Why would you ever step into the CM world that's cutthroat and tiny margins and you're this tiny business, but they, they have a way of attracting talent and they have a way of keeping that, th those people happy and, um, and, and giving them sort of, what they need to grow and and the independence to make decisions and the autonomy that they need to feel like uh even though they're not working for maybe some prestigious company they're happier because they're they're giving all they're given all these perks and it's not necessarily the money it's it's given the freedom to sit down and have a con conversation with mike conrad in the middle of the day from a home office right right um and uh they've done an excellent job of that and they've also set an excellent example of being able to step back and trusting their people to make decisions for them and rewarding them when those decisions go well and helping them when those decisions go poorly. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really tricky thing to solve. I, uh, but I, I hope someday that those guys write a book because I think they've, I think they've solved it. <laughs> well, they made the first good move by changing the name from Moronics to, uh, Worthington. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, they, they started early. They started making good decisions early. So yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Chris, I wish they is, could take credit for that, but I don't think they would. No. Okay. Well, I'll give them the credit anyway, but uh, sure. whether it's deserved or not. Um, thank you, Chris, for being my guest today. And thanks for sharing your, your wisdom and your insight into the world of CM contract manufacturing. It's a, like you said, it's a, it can be cutthroat. It can be all about the money, but, but I think uh, you guys do it a little bit differently. And, and, and the impression I get is it's, it's, uh, it's about more than that. It's about choosing the right customers, the customers choosing the right uh, vendor and having that uh, fruitful relationship, you know, that, that makes your company yeah. successful and it probably makes your, uh, the, what you ship to your customers uh, successful as well. Yep. I would say uh, to that point, if you are nervous to talk to your customer, you probably don't have the right customer. You know, you should, yeah. you should be in the position where you're comfortable to have that difficult conversation. Hey, I screwed up. And if you're afraid to tell that customer that you screwed up, um, maybe they're not the right fit. Maybe you're not the right fit. And uh, the more honest conversations you can have with your customers, and honestly, same could be said, you know, philosophically with your, <laughs> with your employees, with your loved ones, with your friends. Yep. If you're, if you can have honest conversations with people, then you found the right people in your life. Right. Well, tough love goes beyond your just your children, right? Sometimes, right. you know. We do love our customers, but sometimes we have to have conversations with them with them that are difficult, and and we're on the receiving end of that quite regularly. You know that we. Yeah, have I hope to I'm not hear. one of those. We'll see. We'll see I'm sure you won't be. I'm sure you won't be. <laughs> if not, we'll complain about each other, but we'll respect each other, and you know, okay. there's a bigger picture there, so uh, we'll be fine. You'll be fine. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate you carving out an hour or so of uh, of your day and uh, time to get back to work and start building boards and, and, and getting new customers yeah. and all of, start all of that in the company again, <laughs> start working. Yeah. Yeah. Go back in right now. You're on, but you're going to have to go yeah. back in for a while. We'll go back in. All right. I appreciate your time, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thanks Mike.
Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space. And as we discussed earlier at the beginning of the show, the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations and Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with the K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters. 